G'day all, welcome back to the No Name Podcast. Uh, I've got a special guest with me today. Today's the 15th of April, it's Friday, so happy Friday to everyone out there. Uh, former former uh, Victorian Government Minister, uh, executive across uh, public and, and private uh, sector businesses and roles and public policy uh, and someone that I think is quite interesting. Uh, he's very vocal on Twitter as well. So Philip Dalazakis is going to join me today. Uh, so I hope you all enjoy it. I think he's got some wonderful insights that uh, he can share with you all. So Phil Dalazakis joins me today. Phil, how, have, uh, how, do, how, do I, how do I find you on this uh, this nice sunny Friday morning? I know. Well, it's actually, well, it's actually a beautiful day. But uh, I went for a walk this morning with uh, two of my three kids, and uh, the weather bureau helpfully told me it felt like 1.6 degrees. <laughs> and I can tell you that the weather bureau was accurate. <laughs> yeah, I went, I went for a run this morning as well. And anyone that knows me knows that I don't particularly like wearing t-shirts when I run. I wear singlets, and uh, it was pretty cold this morning <laughs> when I got home. Yeah, well, so I, I was rugged up. <laughs> I had gloves. I had beanies. Uh, I had jackets. Uh, it was uh, quite fresh. Let's mm. say that. Yeah. Now I wanted to talk to you because um, I guess I sort of know you through through um, through my dad, through politics, um, different probably side of the political divide. I know that a lot of people on my side of the political divide. Um, I guess they've got varying different opinions of yourself. Um, which I think are either fair. Sometimes oh, I actually think they're unfair because I think I think there are a lot of people in life that, um, and I've said this to other people. I said I've said to people, um, you know, you'd actually find that if you met this person and you sat down with them and chatted for half an hour, or so you'd actually get to like them. So that's what I've kind of tried to do here. Now I just wanted to talk to you a bit about your pre-political life, sort of what you did. I, I sort of understand that you you worked in a few different sectors public sector, private sector. I mean, did you enjoy that? What was that like? Because um, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s. Most people listening to this are pretty young. Did you find that probably having a few different um, things that you sort of tried early on in your career helped you or was that sort of a hindrance or, or how did you view that? Yeah, so the simple answer is without a doubt. For me, uh, having a range of experiences you know, really prepared me very well for life in politics. I have both a commercial and finance background, uh, as well as obviously my time in and around public policy. I phrase it that way very specifically because for me, I have a very deep love of public policy and that's what attracted me to being in public life. Mm. Uh, So I've had over the years a range of kids come to me and, and ask whether I would mentor them or have chats with them and the first thing I say to them is what do you believe in? What are you passionate about? Uh, if they can't identify something that, that really resonates with a purpose, then I, I say to them, look, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm the right person for you or this is the right time. Mm. People that go into politics for power's sake are the antithesis of uh, what I've done and also the people that I've stayed and remained friends with. You know, even in my career, I've worked with people who, in a public perspective, are considered both colourful and uh, and and also probably uh, take no prisoners. 
including Senator Conroy. Mm. People always yeah. confuse though with Stephen, and Stephen to this day still remains a very dear friend of mine. Mm. Stephen was never about power for power's sake. Stephen was always about using his position in the Labor Party and in the political sphere to further a public policy agenda. Uh, people get that really confused with a lot of people, not just myself or Senator Conroy or existing members of Parliament or past members of Parliament. They miss the reason that people uh, wield uh, their influence and what they're trying to achieve. Mm. So if I go back to the beginning, I started my career at Deloitte. I did a double degree at university. I did a Bachelor of Arts, majored in politics and Thai language and a Bachelor of Business Management. Mm. I then went to Deloitte. Uh, I worked in what's called uh, the Middle Market Group, or at Deloitte back then it was called Gross Solutions Business Consulting. Uh, we worked on SMEs, uh, and I, I, I almost joke at this point because the definition of an SME back then was really whatever uh, the uh, family business owner wanted to deem themselves. <laughs> so I worked on accounts that sometimes were hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and sometimes just a few million dollars. Mm. Uh, prepared special purpose financial reporting, tax returns, uh, FBT, uh, I did audits. Uh, we, we really did the whole the whole box of dice. Uh, and then I went to a client site as the acting financial controller and that was a pivotal change in my early career because I absolutely loved the life cycle of working in a business and seeing the progress uh, and the continuation of day-to-day work and, and the impact that that would have. Mm-hmm. And so when my succumbent came to a natural end, uh, I wanted to continue that experience and so I left Deloitte and I went to a, fa- a small family group of companies as their financial controller. That small family group of companies was a, an amazing experience for me and uh, after a period of time they were uh, facing some financial challenges. I made a recommendation to uh, the founders of the uh, family groups that they should probably look at trimming their costs. That included looking to remove my position and uh, hire a bookkeeper for the short term until they could be self-sustaining. They rejected my recommendation then came a week later and said, actually, uh, that's probably quite clever. They did that. And then within two weeks, uh, I was working at Centro Property Group in the property finance team. Now, uh, the first bit of advice is always back yourself, but always be true to yourself. Mm. Uh, and never pull your punches. And so already early to be able to make a recommendation that obviously your position Mm. was uh, not superfluous to the organisation, but in terms of uh, the welfare of the organisation, the right move was to remove yourself from it. could be challenging for some, but for others, uh, it's actually the right recommendation. Mm. And if you can back yourself to, to come out of it okay, and within two weeks I had a job. So... You know, things work out for a reason, and uh, that's the first, I guess, that's my first lesson in life. Uh, from Centro, I always joked that I joined them when they were th- their share price was $3.30, and I left Centro when their share price was $7.70. So I always say that, you know, I, I take no responsibility for the share price going up to $10 or down to $0.04 cents and then being delisted. Yeah. Uh, for, those, <laughs> for those people that don't remember, Centro was one of the largest uh, retail shopping centre owners. 
No, I no, I want, I, want, I, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, I find it very interesting because what you said earlier on, like, I sort of started my career in restructuring and insolvency and did that for about four years and then actually realised the thing I liked most was investigating stuff and um, and running businesses. So that's uh, that's kind of what I led to my next job was kind of something that uh, I thought, okay, well, I like this, these elements of it. I'll try something new. So... I work as a, not at the moment because we're sort of shut down predominantly, but I work as a business analyst for a, sort of a large private company here. But yeah, I know what you mean in terms of sometimes, I guess, as you say, get, working for a peak employer organization um, probably would have would have put you at odds with many of, you know, your colleagues and, uh, and, and people that you would have associated with. But I think there's, there's times in life that, as you say, you've got to, you've got to stand up for things that you believe in. And yeah, I think there's, a, as you say, there's a lot of regional communities and rural communities probably doing it a bit tough, especially the, the timber loggers and so forth. And I think that um, any person, like, cause I've been in the situation where you unfortunately have to tell people that they no longer have jobs. Uh, it's an awful thing to do. Like, so I think anyone who intentionally goes out there and is happy about people losing their jobs um, for their own sort of, you know, if it makes them feel happy, uh, that's that's not a very good thing, I think, in my view. Um, so anyone that's going to actually go in and bat for someone uh, and, and bat for their job, I think that's, that's very important in today's society. Um, and then, yeah, I guess sort of around the 2010 mark, what did you sort of do after that? Because I know in 2014 you... You were elected to the state upper house here in Victoria, in the in the southern southern metro region. Um, did you? I mean, was that something that was planned necessarily, or was that something that just came about because it, there are a few things that well, happened, or? Yeah. So there are a couple of steps in between, which I'll just quickly take you through. Because, yeah. Uh, they're, 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 they are in and of themselves important to sort of my journey. Uh, about six months before the 2010 election, I'd had an approach from Senator Conroy to join join his staff uh, as his initially as his deputy chief of staff with with the possibility of uh, taking over as his chief uh, if the opportunity came up. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that stage, I said no because uh, I felt that I owed the uh, the industry and the association the respect of seeing through what was going to be in my assessment at that time, which proved to be the case, a difficult election for the industry. Mm. And so after the 2010 election, uh, Stephen rang me back up in January. I remember having a conversation with him. And he said, right, you've, you've had your fun. Uh, you've got through the election. Uh, come and work for me. And uh, I have to say, that, again, the opportunity to work on uh, the formulative policy of the NBN, which was and still remains a massive national infrastructure. And this could become a, a podcast on its own mm. uh, just on this one issue. But it's something that, that I, I still remain a passionate believer was the right policy. Uh, I believe uh, that it was the right opportunity and the right time to pursue it. Uh, subsequently, obviously, the, uh, the five awards have gone on under Abbott and Turnbull, etc. So... Uh, we can we can leave that for another time, but yeah. <laughs> it was very attractive to me with my my, my love of public policy, and mm. also having worked in state parliament, the opportunity you know I've got to say to you know test myself at the federal level uh, for me was quite attractive 
to see uh, to see how how I how I I guess whether I swam, sank or swam I guess and, and I, I really loved my time there and then uh, I committed with Stephen to see through till the next election but halfway mm. through that period my wife and I um, were fortunate enough to have our third child and uh, working notionally from Melbourne but being away from home probably seven and a half to eight months of the year uh, is not conducive when you've got three children under six years of age mm. and so <laughs> yeah. at that stage uh, at that stage Stephen uh, was extraordinarily understanding and supportive of me uh, leaving under those circumstances and so I left and of course this is probably the, the, the biggest uh, experience of my life because what do you do when you've got five mouths to feed because my wife on maternity leave didn't have an income uh, at the time, uh, five mouths to feed and a mortgage, of mm. course, you set up your own business yeah. with no income. And so mm. uh, I set up a consulting uh, firm which did a, a, a suite of my previous experiences. I did some uh, strategic communications work. I did some government relations work. Uh, I did some management consulting and some financial um, some corporate advisory work as well yeah. and uh, again Deborah and I made that decision together we gave it six months uh, if it wasn't working within six months and I'd have to go back to a PAYG uh, role but within six months it was successful uh, we had retained a number of clients including uh, I worked did work for a NASDAQ listed client based in the US that had operations here in Australia. It was a really exciting time and one of the most important things that I learned was running my own small business, mm. uh, payroll, uh, work cover, uh, paying your invoices in a timely way. Uh, and for anyone that's run their own small business, the, the, the next line is something that they will understand and you only understand this if you've done it, but if you don't kill, you don't eat. Mm. And the experiences of getting phone calls from your wife saying, I'm at the supermarket checkout trying to pay, and uh, the credit cards being declined, because in the early stages of setting up a business, you prioritise paying either staff or contractors doing work for you, and you do that at the expense of prioritising yourself while you're trying to build your business. Mm. This, this became a, a huge learning experience uh, for me personally and helped me in good step ironically when uh, I was promoted to the ministry uh, and I had the small business portfolio so for me all of these experiences through my, my formative years then held me in good step and of course as, as luck would have it uh, John Lenders who was the previous local member and treasurer in Victoria had sadly uh, been diagnosed with a degenerative eye condition, which meant that uh, as he went into darker rooms or at night time, it was more and more difficult for him to see. Not a lot of people know about this. It is public, so I'm not yeah. saying anything that would mm. embarrass John. But That's scary. There were times that he would, he would go to functions and people would feel missed that he had not acknowledged them. But in, a, in hindsight, uh, people weren't aware that he actually couldn't see them. Mm. And so John made the difficult decision to retire and uh, that opened up a position for me which I wasn't expecting uh, and I hadn't, um, hadn't considered really at that stage. But 
Parliament and with that love of public policy to uh, be able to contribute and participate at the highest levels was something that for me was uh, very attractive. Deborah again and this theme of family is very important to me. Uh, we made those decisions jointly. She was supportive. It had to be a family decision. It had to be a joint decision. And uh, I put myself forward, was pre-selected uh, in the number one position for the Labor Party in the upper house region of Southern Metropolitan uh, and was elected. And then mm. six months later, was promoted to the front bench and had the portfolios of uh, trade and investment, uh, innovation in the digital economy and small business uh, and did that for the remainder of the, the term. In fact, the majority of my parliamentary career, I was a minister. Loved that. Had a great time and had a great time because we got some amazing outcome uh, in public policy. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome because I love the... I think, yeah, I think I, I like the fact you mentioned the fact that there's, there's so many difficult decisions, obviously, and families is a big part of that as well because there's so many i guess challenges that you face obviously you know you kind of you've got mouths to feed and i think that makes it a little bit harder it probably provides a bit of impetus as well to sort of to really push yourself and strive for that that next level um because that's that's what you have to do um i guess there are other people relying on your performance and, and your output as well so I guess you have to. You have to. I guess you have to jump that. You you have to jump to the next level um, because if you don't, you know, you might not ever get there, kind of thing. And I think that's that's something that I really enjoy. But then, as as your time as a minister, I think to, to me, I think having a little bit of insight. I think you know, being in parliament's okay, but I think being a minister where you've got um, a lot of autonomy to obviously make decisions and and meaningful policy contributions is is fantastic and um what are some things that you look at from the sort of the period of time i think the three and a half years that you were a minister for and you think oh okay i'm really i'm really proud of that or um i'm really glad that you know we, we stood firm on that and, and stuck through with that public policy uh idea or thought um and, and actually brought that into fruition here in victoria well i'll pick uh, one or two things from each of my portfolio areas because I did have a huge love of all of them. Mm. Uh, within the trade portfolio, we did some amazing work. We expanded our trade offices overseas. We've got the highest number of trade offices uh, globally, only second to Austrade. Mm. And we expanded offices into Singapore uh, and Boston. We uh, created and opened a new office in Latin America, in Santiago, in Chile. Uh, we uh, then uh, looked at uh, significantly, and this was a significant move, to rebrand what was then called the VGBO, the Victorian Government Business Office. And it occurred to me that uh, when I was travelling on a couple of trade missions and I would have a trade commissioner with me, and they would introduce themselves, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm the VGBO. I'm like, what the heck is a VGBO to somebody else? Like, what does it mean, yeah. the initial branding, the first instinct of somebody going, what the heck is that? So we, had, we then had a look at it. I was very taken with the UK model, which is UK Trade and Invest. Mm. And uh, so we rebadged to become the Victorian Government Trade and Investment uh, Network, so the VGTIs as, 
admission uh, at a show or in the course of their ordinary work. Uh, Hi, I'm Commissioner so-and-so. I work for Victorian Government Trade and Invest. And straight away, people can understand what they do, what they're about, and so we're on point on brand straight away. That was the first time that there had been any change to the network since 1993. So Mm. this was a rebranding exercise uh, both and, and more than rebranding repositioning and it was important because the trade component is huge for our businesses going overseas and obviously for our education for people coming in down but equally important is that investment attraction uh, the key to job growth and economic growth is missed by a lot of people it's actually inbound investment facilitation mm-hmm. and attraction yeah. Uh, the more investment we can attract, uh, at the, you know, obviously with my Victorian hat on, into Victoria, the more successful we'll be at supporting, growing, building the economy, and it's all about creating jobs and opportunities for people, and hopefully high-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's probably a good segue because um, the, the last thing on the trade before I jump into that segue was that we undertook a range of economic uh, strategy papers. Uh, we launched the China strategy paper early in my tenure as trade minister. That had been led by the Premier, Daniel Andrews. Uh, And then when I came in, uh, I said, okay, our relationship with China is good and uh, it needs to be and we need to work on continuing that because it's a great opportunity. But like any business, you can't put all your eggs in the one basket. We need to be able to ensure that we diversify that we open new market opportunities to our people and our businesses, but more importantly, we create those links now so that we can ensure that uh, our businesses are not reliant upon one economy. Now, in hindsight, given everything that's gone on in recent times, and I I certainly don't want to cross that political divide at this point, but Mm. uh, it it was uh, the right strategy, and if anything, I probably should have pushed it harder. But we created uh, a trade strategy for uh, ASEAN or the Southeast uh, Asian uh, countries. We created a strategy for Latin America. And of course, we did one into South South Asia, which included uh, predominantly India, but there was an element, of course, into Sri Lanka as well, uh, and a piece there. So I was very proud of the reforms that we took into the trade portfolio investment facilitation we did amazing things through our trade network as well and that that was the segue into the innovation piece because we managed to uh, build a profile in Melbourne around the world people may not recognize this but we attracted the Asia Pacific headquarters or AMZ headquarters for uh, amazing uh, companies like Slack and Square, Zendesk, Etsy, Eventbrite, GoPro, Hyatt, these companies all chose to expand their regional presence into Melbourne, uh, not just with sales or administrative roles, but for example, the deal that we did with Zendesk is one that I'm extraordinarily proud of and one that I think demonstrates the value that, that we, we were able to create. The deal we did was to create, uh, I think it was upwards of, about uh, approximately 200 software engineering jobs. The reason this this is important because software engineering jobs are high-skilled and high-paying roles. Mm. And uh, I think it was uh, a 
hide those roles within two years. And so we were able to then go back to them and say, well, you've already successfully done this in two years. Why don't we rejig our agreement and look at hiring more people to attract? Now, yes, there is an element of using Victorian taxpayers' investment facilitation to support that, but it's about supply and demand Mm. and scale. Most importantly, it's about scale. If you can create huge draw and huge pull for businesses seeking top talent to come to Melbourne, then you attract more talent to come to Melbourne. The more talent there is in Melbourne, the more other businesses come here to uh, to attract. It becomes this sort of almost self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, this, you know, the, the ball rolling down the hill that continues to gather momentum. And that's what we were able to do in a short period of time. Mm. To, to the extent where Melbourne is and, and Victoria is now regarded as the tech capital of not just Australia, but in some of the tech indexes, you know, you, we're talking behind per capita at uh, the time, behind San Francisco and uh, New York and London, Berlin, probably around the top six or seven tech cities globally. Right. And uh, that, for me, is something that I, I will remain very proud of the work that we did in the innovation portfolio. Plus, of course, the $60 million for LaunchFig, uh, the work we did in biotech. You know, Melbourne has a huge history in the biotech area. First started with uh, with Kenneth, then absolutely continued with a, a, a vision uh, that saw no one stopping in his way by John Brumby uh, and supported by Steve Brax as Premier. And and so to continue that work on uh, was a real privilege because uh, obviously, you know, given both the uh, capacity, the capability and historically what they contributed to Victoria, both Kenneth and Brumby contributed a great deal. So to be able to walk in their footsteps in that biotech space for me was uh, an honour. And then last but not, certainly not least, is the small business portfolio. And it's ironic that, that I leave it to last because it was probably here that I had some of probably the most profound changes that I was able to implement uh, as a minister to demonstrate what you can actually do. So we implemented the very first 30-day payment code in Australia. It was a voluntary code that we established. Um, and then in our stakeholder uh, discussions as we were looking to implement it, we discovered that the Business Council of Australia was wanting to do something similar national, uh, nationwide. And we had discussions with Jennifer Westercott, and I said to Jennifer at the time, this would be ridiculous for us to duplicate. This would be ridiculous for us to create more red tape. Uh, we are both working towards the same outcome. Why don't we join our schemes together? We will run it in Victoria. You will run it everywhere else in the country. Uh, and together we will have one joint system. And that has been the precursor to obviously not just the federal government but other jurisdictions moving payment terms below 30 days to five to seven days as well. Hugely, hugely transformative public policy. And one of the reasons that this came about was because we had had uh, some large businesses taking advantage of small businesses as both cash flow and line of credits moving payment terms out to 60, 90, 120 days in some cases. And in one particular case, they were telling their suppliers that if you want payment, they were referring them to a financial...
financial institution who had a financial product saying that you could sell your receivables, receivables book at a 5% discount, get your money paid up front, and then, of course, the financial institution got a clip for the referral and then obviously got paid the money back uh, as well. So they were winning at both ways. I don't mention the company, and I'm not going to mention the financial institution because it's not relevant, but what it does do is it illustrates how sometimes large businesses can take advantage of smaller businesses and government needs to be prepared to intervene and intervene in a marketplace when the marketplace is not functioning as it should or when the marketplace uh, is seeing uh, people being taken advantage of because of size and scale. And this is the last point that, that I'll finish on. People need to remember when you talk about big business, small business, when you talk about big government or small government, people need to remember the ultimate goal of any business is to create a monopoly. If you are running your business and your goal is not to create a monopoly, then you are not trying to be as efficient and maximise your return. Now, does that mean the small cafe down the road is trying to take over the, the whole city street? No, it doesn't. But, but their goal is to be the dominant retailer in the local area. And that's not dissimilar. But government, if they're not prepared to step in when there's an imbalance within the market, then the government is not using all of its tools of the trade uh, to the best effect of businesses and people alike. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important one, the last one you make. I think I've seen it as well where, yeah, those larger businesses, um, yeah, do take advantage of, of smaller businesses and for their own ca- for, for the sake of their own cash flow. And I think it is important that there is a safety net there, I guess, in a way, or there is legislative, uh, you know, a bit of power in force um, to ensure that the small business isn't disadvantaged. Um because at the end of the day, I mean that that lack of cash flow in that small business genuinely might mean uh, life and death um, for that business, and and obviously the livelihood of, of the uh, the owner or the owners of that business. Um, whereas for the larger business, they might be able to survive a little bit without you know with without their cash flow having to be uh, perfect the whole way through. They might be they might be able to just um, I guess go through the the, the business cycle a little bit. A um, little bit with some more ups and downs, but they'll still be able to survive. Whereas, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, smaller businesses might not be able to. So, I think I think that's really important. Um, and in terms of obviously, since since you've left politics as well, um, I'm not sure. It was about a couple of years. It was about eighteen months ago. You've done. Uh, you've done. You... Actually, actually, it wasn't. Believe it or not, it might might feel like that. People might be really happy that I've gone, but mm. uh, I left. Uh, I left in the middle of June okay. last year, so not a, not even twelve months. Not even twelve. Uh, at this point, but yeah. look, did you find uh, when you did you find actually when you left? Sorry, I'm gonna ask. Did you find when you left that there were people? Um, what was what was the view? Was it was were people actually relatively friendly and said, "Oh, look, thanks for what you've done," and or was it was it more a view of you know leave and and sort of and that was it? Was it across the divide? Because I think most. My understanding is most times when people retire, um, you know, I think all differences get put aside and everyone sort of shakes hands and, and wishes everyone the best. Is that kind of what happens or reality? Yeah, so you, well, you get different, you get different responses uh, and uh, that depends upon, I guess, how you view things. So mm. I was in Parliament for 
and a half years. Mm. And uh, some people think that if you move into Parliament, you should probably be there for the term of your natural life. And <laughs> yeah. again, probably the reasons for me leaving mm. could almost take up a whole other program or discussion with you, Ross. Mm. But, uh, you know, the fact remains that uh, I was incredibly proud of my contribution, uh, irrespective of the ministerial portfolio work. Uh, probably the areas that I'm proudest of are my contributions in some of the public policy debates that we had. We had some uh, significant reforms that the parliament voted on, uh, one of which was the uh, voluntary assisted dying legislation. Controversial, mm. but okay. uh, yeah. I think in time it will prove to be important policy uh, from a public policy, from a health, and also from a social perspective. Uh, we also had uh, safe access zones around abortion clinics uh, that we that we dealt with. I mean, you know, the opportunity to deal with just one issue in a term of parliament is considered uh, a big, uh, a big move. But for the parliament to work through a range of public policy initiatives, I think is uh, credit to the way that the uh, the parliament dealt and parliament worked. And of course, then there are the more unsavoury things that go on. Uh, one of the things you talked about, working hours and conditions, you know, and you don't talk about this because people go, oh, well, you chose to go into Parliament, so, you know, you knew what you were going into, don't complain. Mm. Well, you know, okay, that's fine, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't have a view on how you can improve things. And then, of course, there was yeah. what we call, um, uh, obviously, the Good Friday affair, which was uh, something that I was obviously involved in uh, because... For those people that have forgotten, what happened was there was very contentious legislation about the fire services reform uh, going through the parliament, uh, and at that point in time, uh, we had been working through uh, the parliamentary week approaching Good Friday. There had been a lot of filibustering going on. Um, some people say that that's fair enough. I'm not arguing that at this point, but nevertheless, the desire to pass the legislation was such that uh, we uh, made a decision as a government to push on with the legislation. Push on with the legislation meant that we were going to go into Good Friday. Uh, and so as we moved into Good Friday, mm. two members of the opposition requested pairs because they said from a religious perspective they didn't want to be working on Good Friday. Given my own religious background, uh, I understood that. And we as a government gave them two pairs. That meant that uh, two members of the government then removed themselves from voting on the legislation. Uh, one of that was uh, the deputy leader at the time, Minister Jala Pulford, and the other one was myself. Uh, both of us, Jala and myself, had uh, overseas travel set up for the Easter school holidays with our family. I had been in discussions with my wife uh, over that night through the evening, uh, through 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., as the parliament continued to sit. Finally, uh, my wife had sent me a message saying, am I flying without you and you'll come afterwards? And at 6 o'clock I said, no, um, I've been given a pair uh, to meet with one of the opposition's requests, so I will come home. So literally, 6 a.m., I left the parliament, I went home, I showered and changed, we packed the vehicle, uh, we went off to the airport with my mother, 
uh, who we picked up on the way. Uh, we parked the car at the long-term car park. We caught our flight to Sydney and then the connecting flight from Sydney overseas. And as my plane landed in Sydney, I got a phone call uh, about uh, the two opposition uh, MPs sneaking back into Parliament to renege on their own pair request and affect, affect the vote. Affect mm. the vote. Yeah, I find I've yeah, I guess because I've had to live through a bit, a fair bit of it. I think yeah, the the notion what you said, oh, people are like oh, you know what you signed up for. Yeah, okay, that might be true to an extent, but as you say, you've got you know there are some ways that you can try and improve things. Um, but I think sometimes you know families and and children and wives or husbands and so forth don't always you know they might kind of know what they're getting into, but. It's like any workplace. I mean, does anyone really want to be at work at 3 a.m. finishing reports that are due at 10 a.m. Well, the next day? Ross. No, let me turn, but sometimes, let me turn the, sometimes let it me happens. Let me turn the question on to you, Ross. Yeah. Let me turn the question on to you. Yeah. You and I both have very distinct ethnic Greek surnames. Yes, we do. Uh, your dad has been, and I think has the only uh, pleasure of serving in both the Western Australian and the Victorian parliaments. So I don't think anyone else has done that. Yeah. But nevertheless, uh, it's not easy for you as the son of a former member of parliament who was outspoken in Victoria, has been outspoken in Western Australia, mm. a man of conviction, uh, and, and for listeners, Peter and I are dear friends. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we, I always joke that Peter's one of the few people that's more right-wing than I am. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. nevertheless, as his son growing up, it's mm. not like Smith, people don't understand, it's not like Smith or Johnson where, where children can just happily sort of blend in with the rest of the people. With a name like Katsubanas or Deladakis, I can recount stories of my children uh, having been identified as a result of things that I did or were covered in the media. But what was it like for you growing up? I wasn't, look, I was pretty young when Dad was in, Victorian, in, in the Victorian Parliament. So it wasn't, it wasn't... Um, I mean, I, I do remember it, but I, I just remember it being hard. Like, I think mum talks about it, obviously, as being, um, you know, she was sort of... And I can remember it too, you know, you'd sort of say, oh, where's dad? And mum would be like, oh, dad's at work. Um, and then dad would sort of come in at night after parliament had finished sitting late on in the night and then would sort of say goodnight. And then you might see him in the morning for five or ten minutes and then you'd go up to school um, or, you know, kinder or whatever. And then you'd see him, you know, that no- you wouldn't see him that night. So it was that. And then sort of as I got older, just even like just basic things like, oh, can your dad come to, you know, university graduation? Oh, no, he can't because he can't get given a pair or or something like that. And I think that's what happened in WA. Um, but there was no, there was only ever one moment where it, it, um, where where a fellow child um said something to me and i was 
I was probably a bit old at this stage. I was 12 or 13. And, um, and it was actually one of my mates heard it and really lost it and went up to this kid and basically said, that's not on. He would never, ever say anything like that. Um, and whatever your parents tell you at home, that's fine, but don't say it to him. And that was, that was basically where it stopped and ended. And this person lived a couple of streets away from me and we were walking home at the time and I knew who they were and I've never said any, anything to them since and they've never said anything to me since. Um, even though that we would walk and catch the same train most days. That was kind of, I'll never forget that, but yeah, that was, um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not nice. And especially there were times where dad would be in the paper later on and teachers, I remember teachers at school being particularly vicious about it and saying some really awful things um, a couple of times. And they would sort of say it in a joking manner and I didn't take it as a joke. And I just used to stare at them and say, and that was it. That was all I needed to do was just sit there and stare at them and say that was it. I wasn't going to, um, I wasn't going to retaliate to that. And then they kind of got the message. So that's, that's where, it, um, that's where it started and ended, but it wasn't, definitely was not easy. It definitely wasn't easy. And as you say, when you've got a distinctive name, uh, I think it makes it, makes it even easier for people in the crowd to, to stand up and, uh, you know, point the finger at you sometimes, uh, and especially, I think if that name's ethnic, sometimes you find that uh, people who might not be of ethnic origin um, seem to to point it out a little bit more than than what they would if it was Smith or Jones or or you know black or brown or something like that. That's 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 just what I've found um, in my life. I don't know about what your kids have found, but yeah, that I, I don't I don't stick up for it um, at all. It's not something that that I deal with it at all. Um, and I don't like it, and, and I wouldn't do it to anyone else. And I think it's, it's yeah. I think it's pretty, I, I think it's also a pretty low, um, I think it's a pretty low, low point for someone to sort of um, compare the actions of their parents or their children to their parents or children, because everyone's unique and everyone does their own thing. That's just, that's my view. Um, on, on things, I don't know about what you think, Phil, but is, no, that, some, is, think, is that something that you, yeah, I, I think we'd like we concur there. And as you say, I think there are there are things that happen, I think, in the heat of, and that's the other thing, too, is I think people that are never people that look on the outside probably don't understand the passion and the sheer, um, I guess the hours and, and the grunt work that actually goes on in politics. So when there are decisions that are made, they don't, you know, I guess it's a bit like making a sausage. They might look at it in the, in the butcher's shop, in the window, um, but they don't know what actually went into doing that or, or went into making that. So for them to sit there and make decisions and I guess sort of throw stones um, isn't particularly nice. Uh, and, and I can see why, yeah, a lot of people just don't go into to, um, to public life. Um, because of that, or, or they might veer away from it a little bit because they just don't want that scrutiny there on them or their families. And I think people who do go into it, um, no matter how long it's for, I think everyone should just be acknowledged that they're trying to do their best, um, that everyone's human at the end of the day. So if you want to be a nasty person and go and attack someone and attack someone's family, well, that says more about you than, than anything else, I think, at the end of the day.
Oh. Yeah, it does. And I don't know how much time we've got to go, but oh. that would lead me into, I think, one of the most destructive things that mm. uh, we've done uh, is uh, remove the superannuation to find benefit scheme for politicians. It is more brutal than it's ever been. It's more confrontational than it's ever been. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, I think that because of the nature of the 24-7 media coverage and because uh, of the way that uh, politics is sort of almost a blood sport these days, that to ask people to go into public life and then give up uh, massive uh, potential earnings within the private sector, I think does a disservice because it provides no security to people. And again, people say, oh, you go into it and do you do this and you do that? Well, that, that's fine. But uh, if you're not prepared to acknowledge the potential impact that it has on the long-term financial well-being and welfare, and people say, oh, but politicians already paid enough. Well, you know, again, uh, without without sort mm. of sounding silly, you pay peanuts and you'll end up with monkeys. Yeah, and, correct. Uh, <laughs> you, want, you don't want people that go into Parliament and think that the uh, remuneration is uh, is chump change because they're so wealthy and you don't want people going into Parliament en masse thinking that the parliamentary salary is amazing and that's the most amount of money they're ever going to get. You want people with a broad range and depth of experience uh, and different earning capacity and capability because that's how you are able to represent the community uh, and hopefully have a feel for the impact your decisions have on them and also the decisions that you need to take in their welfare and their benefit as well. But that's another discussion yeah, again. I think, yeah, definitely. I don't... See, I'm, I'm a very fiscally prudent person, so I'm not sure how defined benefits i don't I, I don't think that it would be copped in the in the sort of the public these days but i think that you're right in saying that unfortunately there are a lot of people there that um that probably think they have a job for life because they're so i guess uh how would i say they're so scared of of what would happen if they didn't have that job either be it for power or for the money um so they try and cling on to it forever whereas i think back in the day when you did get a um, sort of a defined benefit pension after a little while, um, you might find that some people retire after about 10 or 15 years because they decide, well, I've had a good run, whereas now you see these people sitting around for 25, 30 years and you wonder, well, why are they really there? Are they just there to collect a paycheck or, or what? what's the issue um, there after a while? So I can, I can kind of see that point. I think, I think unfortunately, we're probably not mature enough these days with the sort of, the the new cycle and how everything's sort of lambasted everywhere to have that conversation unfortunately um i, I just i find I, I must say that's that's one of the things i find sort of now in isolation life that you find a little bit more time to to watch things and uh see what's going on in the world you find the critiquing of every single little thing um becomes a bit more becomes a bit more prudent um, or not prudent, but I, I think it comes to the fore a fair bit more and people realise, uh, I don't know, I think people just need to sit down and realise that most politicians, I think at the end of the day, or every single one of them is just another person trying to do their best or the best that they can do. 
Um, and if maybe people took that view, then the world would be a better place. I don't know what you think, Phil. Is that is that something? Is that something well, you think? Like, I don't, don't want to. I don't want to sound too profound with probably maybe my last comment with you for today. But no. the fact remains that uh, I am yet to have come across anybody who, in public life, who I've looked at and gone, "What were your motives? Why did you do this?" I, there are people that I vehemently disagree with from their public policy position or the way that they go about expressing it or uh, advocating. But mm. nevertheless, they're there because they believe in something. It mm. could be the complete antithesis to what I believe in. I remember, without betraying confidences, when I was first elected to Parliament in 2014, I met with another member of Parliament whose social policy uh, views were the almost 180 degree opposite of mine. But I remember sitting down with them and saying that they weren't a member of the Labor Party, uh, but they, I remember sitting down with them and saying, listen, I want to get to know you. I don't see that you and I are going to share much common ground on our policy points of view, but uh, I will always defend your right to express it and mm. to put forward your point of view because uh, that is in the best interests of both public policy development, but also within the political sphere. And uh, I think that we've lost a little bit of that. Uh, there's too much polarisation. Uh, there's too much gotcha moments. Uh, and there's not enough uh, people uh, wanting to work together to get an outcome that's to the betterment of everybody. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, yeah, as you say that, I guess that conviviality across um, or collegiality across the the divide probably from what I sort of see is probably as as low as it's ever been. There's there it it does genuinely seem to be a bit of a battleground uh, politically speaking. So I think it's um it'd be it'd be something that I think would be I'd like to see returned a little bit um, more so than more so than anything else. But uh. Before we leave, what I know that you're, you've recently embarked on a new new adventure. Um, you're going to be involved with some public policy uh, works as a director of a, the is it the Asian Asian Pacific Public Policy Research Centre or? Yeah, so it's the it's, it's actual name is the Centre for Asia Pacific Strategy. It's a think tank based in Washington DC, okay. uh, and uh, not surprisingly, with both my ministerial trade background, but also my experience uh, working federally and my uh, deep policy love of both foreign policy and also uh, some uh, intelligence and some security interests as well, uh, the opportunity came along to participate and, and support that. Obviously, with the uh, travel restriction, uh, my ability to uh, to uh, participate firsthand uh, in person is restricted to mm. uh, to remote, but that's okay. Yes. Uh, there'll come a time when that gets lifted, whether it's six, 12 months away, who knows. But mm. also, but contributing in that policy space is hugely important. I think that, you know, we've seen uh, very strong public posturing by China, which has played out in the media over the last month or two. Uh, we've seen the response by 
behind the health challenges the Prime Minister has accurately described, we have an economic challenge as well. So all of that is impacting on geopolitical uh, influences and outcomes. We have obviously the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative uh, and that's a foreign... People, uh, I think, misinterpret it. It is, without a doubt, a foreign policy instrument of the Chinese government. Mm. But rather than be critical of it, uh, my question, if I can sort of turn the question back on people, is why why are we not engaged? That's what that's what foreign aid is used for. Despite what people will tell you, foreign aid has long been held and used by governments uh, for their foreign policy desires for a long time, uh, and and so this is just another instrument that is being utilised by the Chinese central government uh, to further their own foreign policy agenda. Mm. But rather than be critical of the Chinese, what are we doing in that space? So, so I guess uh, rather than necessarily be overtly critical of the Chinese in this instance, I'd be turning the question on ourselves, what are we doing? Yeah. And, and mm. how are we using our foreign aid or what are we using at our foreign policy disposal mm. to try and further it? That doesn't give China a free pass. Please don't misconstrue my comments as doing that. That's not no. the case. No, I like I actually like what you say though in terms of that. It's sort of like I look at uh, my side of politics, especially in Victoria, and I think uh, I'm not saying anything. Um, I'm actually quite supportive of um, the current leader of the Victorian Party, um, but I look at some things that like, the Victorian li- yeah the the stuff that the Victorian Liberal Party does as a whole. And, and, you know, there's sort of a lot of moaning and sort of saying, oh, but Labor do this. And, and it's like, but, yeah, we should do that. that. Why don't we look at what they do and what makes them good and um, successful at winning elections? And why don't we try and replicate that or try and figure out how we can do something a little bit better than that, what they can um, instead of just, I guess, pitching one against the other and saying, you know, come to my side or come to the other side. You've got to be a bit more. You've got to be a bit more strategic than that in life. And and I genuinely and I genuinely think that I'm quite um, happy to put it out there that I definitely support the the current opposition leader here in Victoria uh, to the hilt. But and and he's actually quite good at that. He doesn't you know. And he's actually one that actually came out and said, well, you know, I don't want to just talk about how bad the other mob is. I actually want to come out with some ideas and. Um, yeah, he's probably been the only one so far in um, the last sort of 18 months that's actually done that uh, on the opposition side. So it's it's hard. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean, though. There should be, you know, we should look at what China does and actually think, okay, well, how can, you know, I guess it's it's like any business. If you're looking at what your competitors do um, and you think, okay, well, they do it this way. Well, what can we do differently or what can we do? Can we do it a little bit better? That's just natural human instinct. It's not. It shouldn't it, just be bag them and you know we're better than they are. No, no, and... it, it, it can't be an either all proposition. Yeah. You have to be able to have both eyes open, looking mm. front, back, left, and right. Yeah. Uh, and the, 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 I, I am not a friend of Michael O'Brien's in the way that I am, for example, with your father. Mm. Uh, I don't know Michael at all. Um, I know Anthony Albanese a little bit from my time in and around the federal government. Uh, whether you are opposition leader federally or whether you are op- opposition leader in a state or a territory, uh, the opposition leadership is the most difficult job in politics. Oh, 100%. <laughs> uh, and, and so, uh, again, whether it's Liberal or Labor or otherwise, it doesn't 
doesn't matter. But to have a strong and a healthy functioning democracy, you need to have a strong opposition uh, to not hold the government to account, but to continually provide the people with an opportunity to assess what is happening in government and what could be happening with an alternate government. Mm. And it doesn't, as I said, it doesn't matter what colour or persuasion we're talking about, whether it's state or federal, uh, we need a functioning and strong leadership from opposition at all times to ensure that our democracy is as strong as it can be. Yeah, definitely. And but just before we wrap up, I know that in this time of uh, lockdown, you've posted some pretty funny stuff on Twitter, some, some really good recess spreads for, for your children. Um, how many times do you reckon your son has sacked you as his uh, grade two teacher? Oh, God. i tell you what, if I'd had a dollar for every time he said, Dad, you're done, or I'm firing you, uh, I would not have to work again uh, in my lifetime and probably yours as well. I love that. So I, my hat's off, I must say, my hat's I'm... off to all the educational uh, professionals out there. I must say, every time I every when I read that, I actually did laugh because I could just, I could just imagine, uh, I could just imagine what it's like in households across Australia, not having children of my own, um, and not being at school age. But I could just imagine what it's like to have, especially young children, <laughs> um, where they do need a lot of attention and a lot of sort of repetition about, you know, you've got to sit there and concentrate. I think high school might be a little bit easier because. By that stage, you kind of have the idea of being able to sit down at a desk for a few hours and being able to occupy yourself. But yeah, I could imagine, you know, the struggle that well, young I, young I parents wanna, are having. I don't, I don't want to ruin your view of the world, Ross, but having a teenage daughter, let me tell you, uh, it's it's not uh, it's not all that it's cracked up to be either. Yeah, so, uh, I've got I've, I've, I've got a sister. I've got a sister. I've got a sister that's a year younger than me, so she's a. Uh, that was my insight, teenage sister. So yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, sort of half ex- half know what I'm going to expect at some stage. I think <laughs> later on. Down the track. Then I, I wouldn't change it for the world. No, 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 exactly. Now I think yeah, as I said, I think you've you've got a very good um, you've got a very good public policy view, and I think you've got a, a really good an interesting sh- story to share. So I'm glad you've uh, you've jumped on. Uh, the phone with me today and join the no name podcast but uh i appreciate your time and um i'm sure we could probably uh dedicate another podcast to st kilda and collingwood and our our fortunes <laughs> and how they annoy us um and and many other things but uh yeah i hope i hope you have a wonderful wonderful rest of the day and uh i hope uh, i hope the listeners have taken some insight uh from what you've had to say i'm sure they have well ross it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, i thank you for the opportunity and i hope that you don't lose any of your podcasts no, no, I'm, I'm sure I probably won't lose any. I'll probably, I'll probably get a few that have a few queries and questions, but uh, that, that's what it's all part about. I think it's about hearing interesting people and uh, hearing interesting things. So right, I, pre- well, I, I appreciate your time, Phil. Thank you very much. Good on you.